What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, I have scoured the Open Floor Globe, and I am proud to announce that there's a renewed vigor here, Michael, among basketball fans. I can't tell you how many questions we got about the Orlando bubble setup, our playoff predictions, uh, what's it going to be like down there, and we're going to dig through all of those questions next week. I just thank everybody for sending them in because, Michael, we were in a desert there for a while, for a couple months. We were never abandoned by the Open Floor Globe. But it did get a little bit quiet, got a little bit dicey there. We obviously leaned very heavily on the last dance, um, you know, probably to the point of, uh, you know, uh, overdoing it. But we're now here at a point where people are ready to talk basketball, and it's just so nice to be back. It's great. I, I, I think you're being a little facetious when you say that we overdid the last dance. I know you enjoyed that experience. Yeah, the phrase I was looking there struggling for was self-parody because, you know, we could... <laughs> you think we should do a rewatch, Michael? Maybe a 10-part rewatch? We could just do that throughout June and, and that will carry us to uh, the playoffs in late July. Hey, maybe not the worst idea in the world. On today's show, though, I wanted to double back on two topics from last week. And, and first of all, uh, that would be just the outstanding and uh, widespread support of social justice issues from NBA players past and present. It just continues. I mean, name an NBA star and they are involved in this um, this growing movement one way or another. So we're going to dive into some questions on that and also just some recent developments uh, from some pretty big name players. After that, Michael, you and I are going to double back and we're going to take everyone's coaching feedback about our quarantine draft. You'll remember you drafted the Louisville greatest with Kawhi Leonard and James Harden and a bunch of role players that nobody could believe that you picked. <laughs> Meanwhile, I drafted essentially the McDonald's All-America team uh, with LeBron and Giannis and Zion and Luka. So we got plenty of feedback, you know, people saying who won, who lost, uh, what did they think of our drafting strategies? And there was just, you know, I'm telling you, like dozens of emails from people who were uh, hopped up on, uh, you know, this basketball moment. So we're going to dig into that a little bit later this show. I want to start, though, Michael, with LeBron James, uh, because there was, you know, fairly interesting news from the New York Times uh, on uh, Wednesday night, where basically LeBron James and sort of a coalition of other professional athletes are putting together a group to help uh, with voting rights. You know, basically, we saw this week down in Georgia, many um, voters or aspiring voters stuck in lines outdoor, outdoors all day, some of them, you know, braving rainstorms to try to cast their ballot because there was issues, um, you know, with the ballot boxes, with the counting machines and everything else. And I'm sure uh, those players, like a lot of us, were sitting around and saying, this doesn't need to be that hard. If I can vote on a Twitter poll with a single click of my finger, I should probably be able to vote for um, my local elections with relative ease uh, and not need it to take up my entire day and, and show up at 6 a.m. at the ballot box. So these guys are trying to do something about it, Michael. Uh, LeBron said... Uh, to the New York Times, quote, because of everything that's going on, people are finally starting to listen to us. Um, we feel like we're getting a foot in the door. How long it's in the door is up to us. We don't know, but we feel like we're getting some ears and some attention, and this is the time for us to finally make a difference. He went on to say, I'm inspired by the likes of Muhammad Ali. I'm inspired by the Bill Russells and the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, the Oscar Robertson's. Those guys who stood when the times were even way worse than they are today. Hopefully someday down the line, people recognize me not only for the way I approach the game of basketball, but the way I approach life 
as an African-American man. So, Michael, why do you think this particular cause is so important at this moment? Obviously, we've got the big uh, national election coming up uh, in November. And then why do you think LeBron seized on this particular issue? So the right to vote is a bedrock necessity in any functioning democracy. And for far too long in this country, there's been this uh, nefarious desire to take that right away. And as you pointed out in Georgia just this week in their primary elections, we saw in broad daylight people waiting four and a half five hours uh, in line because of malfunctioning voting machines and a dearth of polling places. And I mean, it's just like an existential crisis, in my opinion, um, in a state currently led by officials who care more about keeping power than justifying its existence. I mean, voting has always mattered, but like the 2020 election is particularly important and educating people about why voting matters and how to vote uh, Uh, particularly during this time of just mass disruption and confusion. uh, I just think it's 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 vital. And, uh, you know, in many ways, apathy among potential voters who sat out the 2016 election kind of led us to where we are today in this current mess. Um, And for LeBron, I just think that this is the clearest and most effective way to directly impact change without him, you know, holding political office himself. And I'm I'm thrilled that he's doing it. I got to say that those videos of people sitting around outside, you know, waiting all day and, and the reports that the machines aren't working and all this stuff. It's one of those things that just absolutely sickens me when I watch it. Right. It just gets you in the gut because you understand the history of all the legal ways that people have been excluded from voting over the course of the country. And you always want to look back on on the amendments that kind of fix that and open the the vote up to people and say, oh, this is finally America getting it. And now we're actually living up to our ideals. And here you just see this kind of backsliding where it's like, this is way, way too difficult in 2020. Mm -hmm. And for these high level competitive athletes who are so used to, you know, building their life around routines, you know, whether it's a workout routine, what time do you get to the game? What time are you shooting? I mean, they almost have it scripted down to the minute, right? And they understand how to build a successful process. And I'm sure these guys are watching those same videos and it's just killing them, knowing that there should be a very simple voting process that doesn't involve everybody standing around outside all day long, maybe never even being able to vote until 3 a.m. in the morning. That's just got to drive them insane. I mean, these guys are problem solvers. Um, they're high-level achievers. The idea that that's sort of where our, our bar is as a country, that that's how low it is, um, and it has clear impacts on who actually does wind up casting ballots and it can swing elections, it must drive these guys absolutely insane. And so I think it's, it's an awesome fit for them. I mean, it's timely. I think there's also this issue of there's a lot of frustration right now. And I think the leaders, especially within the NBA community from the player side, feel an obligation not just to rant and rave here, right? They feel an obligation to lead in a productive manner. Um, You're seeing that uh, in all sorts of different types of comments. Even Steven Jackson, when he first started it, he wasn't trying to say, oh, we're going to burn down Minneapolis, right? His comment was like, people Mm -hmm. are going to remember the memory of George Floyd. He is going to stand for something. And I think this is another situation here for the players where you're, you're bottling up the raw feelings that millions of people are feeling across the country, and you're finding a way to put it into something that could actually matter on a short-term timeline, right? 100%. And, you know, I was 
particularly intrigued by Trey Young as one of the uh, front-facing athletes in this cause because obviously he plays for the Atlanta Hawks and we just were talking about Georgia and all the issues that occurred there this week. And I mean, it goes back to, uh, I mean, it, it, comically, I think, in a little bit of a way, but like the all-quarantine draft where I made up the Louisville greatest. And one of the reasons why I pick Louisville is because it is... I think important to have, I mean, I think the purpose in some ways of having professional sports teams in communities is for uh, a different type of leadership and a different type of platform and voice that people can connect with. And so if you have, if you promote Trey Young, who is this rising superstar in the NBA, who does have this humongous platform and is liked by so many people, particularly young people, that is really important. And so that was, I thought that that was really smart. And I don't know if it was intentional or for that purpose, but I thought that that was uh, either way a a smart byproduct of all this and uh, also really good to see. For sure. And like you're in a situation where a lot of these players have campaigned for politicians in the past, right? And I'm sure they're feeling like, I want to follow through. I want to return on my time investment as well, right? Like if you're LeBron and you're Mm -hmm. sort of a you know, hosting an event for Hillary Clinton in 2016, you feel like you've really made a difference. You've committed a significant chunk of your schedule to to make that kind of thing happen. And then your advisors are telling you a couple of weeks later, like, oh yeah, by the way, the voting machines just like weren't working in that city. So all those people who you inspired at that event, you know, theoretically who are trying to vote, like, yeah, they just couldn't have vote. That would just grind your gears and be like, I'm sitting around here wasting my time. This is ridiculous. So again, I think it's just a very pragmatic fit um, I like it. I do think, though, Michael, we we owe an apology to the state of Kentucky because you and I, I think we were saying Louisville the whole way. We got a bunch of emails, people saying that it's L- Louisville, <laughs> and I don't even know if I can pronounce it the right way they told me to pronounce it. So I just want to pass from everyone in Kentucky. We understand. We don't say it the way that you say it. I'm just from Oregon over here on the West Coast. You know uh, that that thing drives me crazy. By the way, when people say Oregon uh, rather than Oregon, but uh, just wanted to get that out. People of the way. say Oregon. I've never even heard Oregon. Uh, Oregon, Oregon. Yeah, I don't know. There's different <laughs> ways to say it. My grandparents used to say it uh, totally wrong, um, almost like O R Y G U N. Uh, but anyway, that's incredible. I digress. Um, we also got uh, news here last week, right after we recorded, that Michael Jordan, subject of the Last Dance, uh, had made a 100 million dollar donation uh, to social justice causes. Uh, through the Jordan brand, I guess, to be paid out over the next 10 years. They didn't specify necessarily specific causes, but it was kind of community-oriented. It was mostly a show of support, right, of just letting everybody know where he stood. I think he also put out statements recently um, about the relationship between the Hornets and the police department there in Charlotte. I think there's going to be some uh, modification of their relationship there. Um, And then he also, Mm -hmm. of course, put out a public statement just in general Uh, showing support uh, for the protest movement. Um, This was something that we had talked about at length, Michael, during the last dance, because he seemed so reticent to take up the political issue to, uh, you know, offer any kind of, uh, I guess, evolution on his uh, opinions and, and how he tried to stay out of things back during his career. We got a very thoughtful email from Vernon. And Vernon, I apologize. I can't read this entire thing Um, on the podcast, but I'm just going to read a couple clips here, Michael, and and I want you to respond, okay? He says, Mm -hmm. 
as a black man growing up in the United States, presents very real issues. And since I was very young, I have been aware of the differences in perceptions and responses between myself and my white counterparts. I myself was almost shot by a police officer in Columbus, Ohio, where I grew up when I was 13 years old. I was with my sister, who was 17, and my brother, who was only eight or, or maybe he had just turned nine. And this had all happened in front of my parents. Anyone in my family could have been murdered that day. In the black community, I think many people feel that Michael Jordan's voice could have made a difference and that he prioritized his image over lending his influence. But when we say it, it's an internal discussion. At one point, I believe you guys questioned if Jordan cared about the issues, which is definitely a bridge too far. I don't know what's in another man's heart, but the most controversial thing he really said publicly was Republicans buy sneakers too. Think about Tom Brady being friends or at least friendly with Trump, having a MAGA hat in his locker, but never really coming under fire or being expected to explain himself. That's the worst kind of double standard because it isn't black people's fault that racism exists. So why do we always have to answer and come up with solutions when our white teammates do not? Um, and he went on and had some other examples about players who uh, faced backlash, Michael, for trying to be outspoken during the time period that we were talking about, whether it was uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, um, who had a flag controversy that sort of wound up uh, changing the course of his career, um, and also Craig Hodges, who was very vocal, including during a, a White House um, incident and uh, you know wound up, I think in some people's eyes, being blackballed out of the NBA as well. Uh, so he, he winds up concluding his email, Michael, by saying, I don't know how MJ truly felt because he seems to be very private and even guarded. He doesn't push his family or really himself into the spotlight too often with appearances and interviews. He may have done a lot with his charity that we just don't know about. I think Jordan could have done a lot more vocally with his platform, but I do know some of his impressive philanthropic record, and by all account, it could be much more we're missing, and I'm all fine with that. If he's not comfortable speaking, that's okay, as long as he's contributing his fair share. For every person on the front lines of a protest that gets arrested or harmed, you need people to have bail money and medical expenses. So again, thanks for that email, Vernon. Um, Michael, give me your thoughts on uh, some of the points that he's laying out. Yeah, I mean, this was a great, really powerful email, Vernon. Thank you for sending it, sending it our way. Um, I mean, there's a couple uh, points here that I'd like to address. I mean, right off the top, the first thing that I thought was most interesting was uh, the great point that Vernon made about uh, white athletes getting somewhat of a pass on uh, racism and... I think one of the most important realizations happening right now just across, generally across white America is uh, this understanding that they are the change agents in this process and they are the ones who can end racial oppression and injustice and they are the ones who can rectify their own privilege and that the fight must not be fought by people of color alone. That is absolutely critical. That is vital. And so that's one of the most hopeful things, in my opinion, about everything that's happening today that hasn't necessarily happened at, at the level uh, that it could have in the past. Uh, when it comes to Jordan, I mean, obviously, uh, pledging $100 million to this cause over the next decade is terrific. I don't think anyone would have an issue with that <laughs> at all. Um, and we should applaud him for it. Um, 
I just, I mean, we, I think I in particular have been critical of him in my writing and on this podcast over the past, uh, I guess, few months. And so I just want to say, like, uh, I might be repeating myself, but so much of why Muhammad Ali and Bill Russell and Oscar Robertson and Jackie Robinson and Arthur Ashe and countless other athletes took up social causes was they didn't have a choice. Uh, They could not prosper if they did not fight. And so at the height of his fame, any which way you want to look at it, Jordan did not have that same problem. He could thrive financially and professionally by staying away from issues. So when Craig Hodges, who Vernon mentions in his email, uh, you know, uh, comes to Jordan and asks if he'll sit out game one of the 91 finals to draw attention to the Rodney King beating. And, and, and Jordan says, no, like that's, that's Jordan's right, but that's also Jordan's choice. And so things like that, uh, I, I don't like, it's just, it's, it's a really difficult thorny thing. And so I don't know how productive it is to go back and criticize that, but it's just a different circumstance, and so I, I, I at the same time, don't want to f- completely absolve Jordan for the choices that he's made throughout his career because he didn't have to make those choices. But uh, I guess at the end of the day, you know, donating a hundred million dollars now is better than donating zero dollars now. Well, I think that he's he's starting to get the message about being a public figure on this one and maybe a way he didn't even understand when he was filming his interviews for The Last Dance. And we should remember those were filmed a couple of years ago, right? So there's a little bit of a delay in terms of um, mm-hmm. when he's being asked the, the kind of social justice questions. Um, I do want to just clarify uh, for Vernon's sake. Vernon, I don't think I was trying to directly question what was in his heart. I think what I was saying is, this is how it's coming across during the documentary, right? When he's going on these riffs about Isaiah Thomas for 10 minutes and he's punching his fist and he's recalling these tales and he's just so completely animated, you can tell this is really what uh, he's passionate about in that particular interview. And he just has a completely different, um, you know, body language, um, voice tone, and everything else. I mean, when it comes to some of those other serious subjects, and as somebody who's like watched this guy's life from afar, basically, you know, the last 30 years, um, and knowing that he hadn't said anything publicly on a lot of this stuff in about 10 years, and also knowing that this was going to be a legacy project that he was directly involved in, I thought that he was going to make a little bit more of a stand or at least present a level of evolution that he hadn't previously where he could, you know, be self-reflective and really dig in. And I guess my point is he just really wasn't interested in doing that publicly. And and you raise the right point, Vernon. He's probably, you know, feeling private about it, doesn't want to expose himself, doesn't believe that's kind of relevant to his myth and everything else. And that that is absolutely his right. But I do think it's also our right to kind of point out uh, where, uh, you know, his... Uh, you know, his real passion on this particular subject was coming through in that documentary. And here's the deal. The guy who's donating $100 million publicly and making it known within like the first week after George Floyd's killing and having that trend all over social media and stand as an example for lots and lots of people out there is not quite the same Jordan we saw in that documentary. I think there's been some real evolution, and I'm not sure he wants to acknowledge that. I don't think he wants to admit it, but he wound up being a major leadership force here, a symbolic leader, um, even if it's not um, in sort of the traditional uh, protest route that you know we might expect or we might have seen some of the 
you know, current NBA stars doing. So I give him a lot of credit for, um, you know, his financial support, you know, throughout his career. I understand that. I, you know, I'm the type of person, if I donate money to a cause, I want to say anonymous. I don't want a, a big, like, you know, pat on the back or a public show for what I do. And I, I completely respect that, um, uh, that perspective. But I just think that, um, you know, if we're going back to the, the version of MJ who we saw in the last dance, and again, that's not necessarily MJ at his soul, like, you know, the, the true man behind closed doors. It's just a different uh, presentation than what we saw this past week. Yeah, for sure. And I, I you know, it's really interesting to me, uh, like $100 million is unquestionably great. And I hope that it goes to all the right resources and is able to impact change in the right ways. But you know what I also think would be super powerful is if Jordan just like simply videotaped himself and uh, and posted a video on Instagram or something like that or, or, or Twitter where he personally is calling out for change. Like that is, it seems silly to say it, but that is uh, just as powerful as a press release that says that $100 million will be pledged to uh, causes that are not even very specific over the next decade. You know what I mean, Ben? Well, yeah, he's had a couple situations where uh, when he sided with LeBron, when LeBron and Trump got into the back and forth a couple years ago, and I think his his quote was something like, I'm with LJ. I remember that just like kind of taking a situation that was already big and just take, you know, exploding it across the basketball um, you know, sphere because of how far his words go and because of how, you know, reticent he's been in the past. So I, I kind of hope that this is the beginning, right? And a major theme that we've seen over these last couple of weeks is this idea of like, you know, nudging people a little bit out of their comfort zone, right? So if you were sort of a quiet supporter in the past, well, maybe now you're sharing stuff on your social media, right? If you were somebody who, uh, at your company would generally just take, oh yeah, we're, we're pro-diversity and tolerance, but that was sort of as far as your statements would go. Maybe now some of those companies are going even farther to say, hey, it's it's Black Lives Matters and, and saying that very explicitly and, and directly. Maybe in the past, if it was executives saying, oh yeah, we're going to look inward and try to clean up some of our uh, practices because we know we're, we're not as you know diverse in terms of our employees as we need to be. Maybe now some of those executives are resigning or, or being pushed out by the people underneath them in, in certain areas. I mean, we've seen all that stuff, you know, take a step forward here over the last two weeks. And I, I just see Jordan kind of part of that same motion, right? Like, I think he would have been completely comfortable donating that exact same amount of money two weeks ago and having nobody know about it, right? And I think the fact that he's willing to step out a little bit um, and, and put his name uh, and his company's name to this, I mean, first of all, it's good business right now. We should say that as well. Um, but I think also it's a step forward of progress for, I think, what the protest leaders would hope for. And maybe this winds up being one step of many, you know, maybe five years from now, uh, he's, he's an even louder and more authoritative uh, a voice on this stuff. Um, we just don't know where, exactly where it's going to go. But I think it's a uh, it's progress worth calling out. Now, Michael, to come back to the current stars here for a minute, Kevin Durant gave a very extended interview to Mark Spears at The Undefeated. Um, I think the headline that a lot of people saw was Katie saying, quote, my season is over. I don't plan on playing at all. Um, that is not a surprise, no matter how many times people wanted to bring up the conspiracy theories on Twitter about, oh, could Katie and Kyrie come back and win this title? I never saw that happening. I didn't think there was anything to it kind of at any point. So he slammed the door there. But I think, you know, more importantly, he was getting into a lot of 
uh, of uh, deep water here in terms of race relations. What's it like to be a black man in America? And these kinds of topics with Mark Spears. And at one point he was asked, well, what do you want to see happen in Minneapolis? And Katie says pretty directly, I want to see these four officers tried just like normal citizens. A lot of friends and people I've met in my lifetime have dealt with the system. You feel like they have to fight so much to get their voices heard. So they got to go through the same process. Cops feel like they have protection behind them when they do stuff like that. To know you don't have that protection and you have to fend for yourself, just like a lot of these underprivileged, low-income communities that you prey on. We want to see how they handle that situation. And I'm looking forward to justice being served. So, I mean, it's not quite a revenge tour, Michael, but there's something there, right? There's no, but you know what I mean? Like there's, there's something mm-hmm. visceral behind his words. Like he, he, when he's saying justice, he's like, okay, line this up, treat us like, uh, you know, we're treating you like you're, you've treated us. Um, that's, that's a powerful statement. You know, I think in, if he had made the same comments two years ago um, and maybe the climate was different, again, we're, we're all interpreting this thing uh, in a different manner. But again, I think it's a sign of a progress of, of where this debate and conversation has gone. Yeah, for sure. I think the base cause of so much of the protesting and the unrest is the unfair power that police have in that they are not treated like average citizens when they commit crimes. And there's this thing called qualified immunity, which basically absolves them of abhorrent behavior. Um, And so... uh, Can I ask you one thing on that? Like, Sure. Immunity seems like maybe the worst idea ever. Like, how did they come up with immunity? It's ridiculous. Like, the idea of diplomatic immunity, like, you can just, you know, park your your uh, car with <laughs> diplomatic plates anywhere, and it's like, doesn't matter how violently you're breaking the law, and just like, oh, yeah, it's cool. Don't worry, I'm a diplomat. Um, that, to me, feels like something that just was uh, an error, you know? One of the, maybe the founders got that oh, one wrong. No, 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 100%. And, I mean, in, in just this particular case, it's basically to protect officers who feel like their lives are in danger. And you, if you can prove that they were, they felt that they were in an unsafe circumstance, which isn't, I mean, that's just like a really low bar, I feel like. And yeah. you obviously can't get in the head of a police officer. The, so the bar they, is, sir, were you scared? He was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was scared. Um, so, I, I yeah, it's obviously ridiculous in so many of these cases that we've seen over the, the past few years and even before that. But just like getting back to KD, I thought the interview was great. Um, anytime someone speaks openly and honestly, it's wonderful and particularly on issues that impact so many people. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, Katie is just like a really thoughtful person and he has one of the largest platforms and followings in the entire world, straight up. So uh, I really enjoyed him calling for uh, white people to educate themselves about black history. I'm a big personal proponent of that. Uh, I don't think it's the end all be all, but it's an important start for just so many people who simply aren't aware of what society is and what this country is built on. And so I thought that that was one of my personal uh, biggest takeaways, emotional takeaways after I read the interview. Yeah, for sure. And like you're, you're looking at KD doing this interview, the first really extended in-depth interview that he's done. Um, I mean, he was very reticent when I talked to him, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, he's just been trying to lay low because of the injuries and, you know, he's just, you know, not back yet and frankly doesn't really need the media when you're going through a, a year plus long recovery. So for him mm-hmm. to use this moment to really get his voice out, I think it says 
a lot about how important this stuff is to him as a person. Uh, you, you mentioned the the African American history education part. I mean, look at Russell Westbrook. Not only is he protesting in the streets of Compton last weekend um, with Demar Derozan and others, but apparently he's now producing a movie about the uh, the Black Wall Street situation in Tulsa. Kind of one of the overlooked atrocities of American history. Um, you know, I think that's another great thing where a superstar is putting his money where his mouth is and saying, look, people need to know about this and I have the money to make sure that they can learn about it. Um, it's just another awesome pragmatic step that guys are taking. Can I just, yeah, can I jump in real quick and say, I think it's awesome that Westbrook is doing that. I also think that it is just beyond depressing that that is not already in classrooms being taught to children across the country. And, you know, making a movie is, is terrific and spreading awareness that way. Uh, is wonderful, but I just at the same time see the flip side, and it's like people. The fact that people don't know, already know about that is beyond well, me. Well, Michael, um, we don't. We should look. This is all depressing. We don't need to rely on LeBron to make sure we can vote, <laughs> right? Course, this is yeah. ridiculous. Like everyone should be able to vote. That's like a founding principle of the country that we all it's cherish. A, yeah, I can vote without leaving my apartment. You know, they send me the ballot. I could theoretically have one of my neighbors bring it from my mailbox to me and bring it back down to the postman. I could literally do it without moving from my podcast chair if I needed to with very, very little effort. Never have to brave a single, uh, you know, droplet of rain. Never stand outside. Not, never go to a polling location. None of it, right? It's not that complicated. And I just think that it is very depressing. If we focus on how depressing it is, I think we do miss the point of. These guys, mm-hmm. these NBA players specifically, are stepping up to fill the cracks, right? LeBron and those guys, they're saying, this is not right, and we need some sort of a Band-Aid solution here ASAP, so we're going to you know, go out of our ways into territory that's not their full-time job to try to find a solution. And with Russell Westbrook, it's kind of the same deal. Uh, you know, He's got young kids. He's got a wife. He's got a family. There's plenty of things for Russell Westbrook to do. He likes to design his sneakers, his clothing line. I mean, he has a million interests, right? So again, for him to say, all right, this is important enough where as many people as I can get to, to know about the situation, I'm going to educate. I think it's uh, it's awesome. And, you know, again, if you put these things out into the, you know, the educational sphere, that's kind of how you change curriculums, right? Like once people are mm-hmm. aware of it, they might start going to those PTA meetings and being like, you know, why aren't my kids being taught about this? Now, this is not going to, you know, I'm not predicting, you know, a widespread change of American, like, you know, rewriting of the history books or anything like that. But if you just never do it, you're doomed to be stuck with the same reality we've had for the last hundred years, right? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Great point. Uh, I just wanted to quickly point that out because it sucks. <laughs> no, dude, <laughs> um, it really sucks. Uh, we got uh, more NBA superstars here, though. Giannis. In the streets of Milwaukee, he says, this is our city, man. We've got to come out here and support. And then the crowd cheered for him, and he went on to say, we want change, we want justice, and that's why we're out here. That's what we're going to do today. That's why I'm going to march with you. I want my kids to grow up here in Milwaukee and not be scared to walk in the streets. I don't want my kid to have hate in his heart. And those quotes are from uh, jsonline.com, the Journal Sentinel uh, there in Milwaukee. Michael, I found this particularly interesting, obviously because I'm a big Giannis uh, believer, but also because of the Bucks' history with uh, you know the, the local community there. I mean, we remember Sterling Brown 
um, in a situation of police brutality because he parked in like mm-hmm. a, a parking spot he wasn't supposed to be in and all of a sudden he's getting taken down and, and that's leading to lawsuits and he's refusing to settle on a matter of principle and trying to you know basically you know bring these guys into the light you remember john henson uh, going to the watch store and you know looking to buy some luxury watch and, and basically having the store owner close the door on him because uh, the guy was afraid that henson was trying to rob him or something just based off of the ro- uh, racially profiling of him um some pretty ugly episodes here over the last few years with that franchise and the, and the local community here is Giannis trying to put all that behind him and saying all right like we're going to do this together um what did you make of of Giannis's presence here yeah i thought it was terrific i mean just generally almost every nba superstar that i've seen marching uh in protests speaking into megaphones uh, starting chance, participating in chance. Uh, it's just really powerful to see. Uh, and Milwaukee has to be, you know, one of the more uncomfortable cities to live in. If you're black, if you're uh, an NBA player, a black NBA player in particular. Um, and you know, after kind of like marinating on this particular situation for a bit, like I want to bring something up with you that I've been thinking about. And this, again, might just be uh, a pipe dream. It might just reflect my own naivety. Um, I don't know if it would be how it would be received if he were to leverage his free agency for racial progress. But could you imagine uh, Giannis demanding, publicly demanding systemic reform in the Milwaukee Police Department? And if he doesn't see it or if no bills are passed or if there is no change, he threatens to sign elsewhere. Michael, this is one of your grandest ideas in terms of scope. So you're saying Giannis goes public with defund the police and I'll sign the Supermax. This is (laughs) this is what you're proposing. I'm merely just, you know, throwing it into the ether, seeing seeing some thoughts. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, look, that's the thing, like. That would seem so radical compared to what we normally experience. But at the same time, if you're talking about like this being the player empowerment movement, doesn't that, wouldn't that sum up player empowerment almost better than anything else? It's like, hey, look, um, I want to tie my ability to help this city with the the city's ability to help its citizens. Um, That's pretty wild, man. I'm not sure he's going there um, with that. No, I don't think so. (laughs) But could a player in the next five or 10 years, you know, do something along those lines? Or or maybe it's something, you know, where, um, I mean, here's the thing. There's probably collective bargaining agreement and tampering rules that would prevent some of these things from happening. So maybe they have to be backroom deals and and, and something of that nature. But I could see... Uh, a player and a team having some sort of a conversation along those lines where maybe it's uh, like with Kawhi Leonard, for example, you know, the, the Clippers all of a sudden are donating like 1 million backpacks to school children across Los Angeles. Like that's coming because Kawhi is basically asking for that. Right. Um, so they're making a major financial contribution almost on behalf of luring Kawhi and free agency. I'm wondering if, if that's the way to do it, right? Like Milwaukee commits to, you know, some of the Bucks commit to some like major local uh, initiative from a social justice standpoint to kind of uh, as part of the package to keep them, maybe. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, we know that these superstars, uh, you know, there's only a few guys who could who have this type of pull and this type of power. Giannis is certainly one of them. 
And we've seen, as you just brought up with Kawhi, there are so many instances of organizations bending over backwards to appease their stars. Um, and I just think it would be fascinating if that star decided to express his power and leverage his power and his standing by putting pressure on elected officials. I just think that would be next level and amazing because yeah, well, if in, I mean, in this context, so we should give LeBron credit. I mean, it, it wasn't that he was necessarily like pressuring local officials, but he did make his second return a lot about what could he do for that community, right? So he builds the school in Akron, um, you know, the, the academy. He's investing all sorts of different ways, the, the bike giveaways and everything else. I mean, that was central to his free agency decision. So maybe it's not that crazy of a leap to go one degree further and, and make it even more explicit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, the more I'm like talking about this out loud, the more I actually want to see it happen. So yeah, Giannis, you're a hero. Make it happen. Wow. That's a big burden you're putting on him. But, uh, you know, <laughs> look, broad shoulders. Uh, he's shown he can handle a lot during his life. Did he let his free agency plan slip when he said, I want my kid to grow up here in Milwaukee and not be scared to walk in the streets? I don't want my kid to have hate in his heart. Obviously, he's got the newborn child, Liam, who I believe was at the uh, the protest, at least briefly, with him. Mm-hmm. Um, did he just tip his hand, Michael? You know, there's that possibility. Uh, I personally never listen to NBA players when they talk about free agency uh, until the contract gets signed. I mean, the most obvious example here is Kyrie Irving uh, with the Boston Celtics and him saying that he was basically going to resign, and then obviously he did not. So there's, you know, you can kind of, words are kind of cheap in situations like this. Um, So I don't know, like, I don't know if he let his, I don't know if he knows what he's going to do yet. I don't know if this was him letting it slip. I don't know if he was just trying to be uh, emotionally resonant with his word choices. Uh, But yeah, it was, uh, it did, it did definitely catch my eye. It caught my eye too, because remember, Kevin Durant, before he left Oklahoma City, was kind of, you know, he was giving a lot of feelers about how the city had grown up around the team, you know, the big new downtown and how um, it had been such a good home for him for a while. And then he kind of changed his mind, uh, you know, in July and he now he's on the Warriors and people are feeling really, really hurt. You know, I just wonder when you're making statements like that to the fans and the fans are hearing you say you want to be in Milwaukee in this particular moment and they're turning to you for leadership in this moment and you're accepting that responsibility. That's a very personal, mm-hmm. right? If you were to turn around, you know, 12 months from now and you're on the Raptors or the Miami Heat or the Warriors, there's going to be some people who are at that rally who are going to feel uh, hurt by it, you know? And of course, it's an NBA player's right to do whatever he wants. I'm just saying that when you make those kinds of statements, not that you box yourself into a corner, but they they do give a lot of people a lot of hope who are just kind of clinging on every word. And particularly in this moment where people are looking to, you know, to athletes to take a, uh, you know, leadership stance here. uh, If he winds up changing his mind, that's going to have blowback. You know, I I think people are going to point back and say, don't you, don't you remember that uh, rally when you told us you wanted to raise your kid here? Um, And that's, you know, I, I think if I was his agent, and he was really, truly weighing all of his options. Uh, I would read those quotes and I'd be like, all right, we got to try to scrub these from the internet. Like, no no offense to Milwaukee, but this is <laughs> this is like damage control time in terms of his reputation, right? Um, yeah. It, real quick, like at the same time, you're kind of like, I don't want to name call, but it's pretty foolish to, again, take 
the words that a player will say at face value at a time like this. No, I, I hear you, but fans are fans, man. Like they're thinking with their fans heart. Are fans. They're, they are thinking with their heart. And I don't blame them for that. Um, and I do think that like there's a little bit of a responsibility from players. Like KD basically knew he was going to leave Golden State, right? He wasn't like waxing about how great the Golden Gate Bridge was all season long. You know, <laughs> if anything, he was just like distancing himself from the media as much as possible, kind of doing the the slow burn on the exit, right? Um, and I think that's a little bit more respectful than being like, oh my God, I love San Francisco. It's so great. The views and everything else. And it's like July 1st, boom, me and Kyrie going to Brooklyn. You know, that's, <laughs> you just don't want to lead people on, I guess is my point. Um, sure. But I think that Giannis can make a real difference in that city if he wants to. There's no question in my mind. And it, it does seem like from those comments and just the videos watching it, that's where his heart is. And, uh, and you do like to see that. And he said that, by the way, this is not the first time he said, I, I'm interested in staying. So we, we shouldn't dwell too much on this one particular episode. But I just think that the visibility of it is going to wind up having people remember it uh, in a different way. All right. One last player who was out there protesting was Steph Curry. And I was watching this video, uh, Michael, and I believe he was chanting, Donald Trump has got to go uh, with uh, other uh, protesters as they're walking down the street. And that just made me wonder... You know, here we're having direct challenges to the status quo from a lot of NBA players, people, including LeBron, that Trump has tangled with in the past. Here you have a more direct rebuke of the president, um, you know, from a very high profile, very popular NBA player. And we saw, I guess, over the last couple of weeks, uh, Trump is tweeting about just about everything. I mean, I think there was hundreds of tweets during a couple of days uh, stretch there. And he did tweet about the NFL statement um, you know, essentially admitting uh, wrongdoing in terms of race relations. Uh, Roger Goodell said that in a, in a speech uh, that he videotaped. Uh, he, Trump didn't think there should have been an apology and was trying to turn it into a flag issue again. But he has not really mentioned the NBA players in any way that I've seen. Obviously, he's talked about George Floyd, uh, but he hasn't, you know, brought up Stephen Jackson or LeBron James or Michael Jordan or really touched it with a 10-foot pole. Why do you think that is, and are you bracing at all for a little bit of a, a showdown here, kind of round two? Like, remember you bum from LeBron? Are we going to get you bum part two? Yeah. So, I mean, asking anyone to get inside Trump's uh, brain is just, it's tough. Um well, look, Michael, I, will say, I wouldn't ask anyone, okay? <laughs> I'm asking you, one of the premier analysts of uh, of NBA basketball, and, um, you know, speculate away, man. This is, uh, sure. you're not being held to this for the end of time. It's just an interesting situation, right? Where it's like day after day after day after day, we're seeing NBA players make this a front and center news story, not just sports story, news story. And you know he's seeing it because he kind of sees everything as people see everything. They kind of pick and choose their battles a little bit. Um, and yet nothing on the NBA side. Yeah, I mean, I was about to, I, w I was thinking about answering this question with the Justin Trudeau 21 seconds of silence beforehand <laughs> as I gathered my thoughts. But uh, I think one of Trump's fundamental principles is division. And I mean, he loves tearing people apart, literally and figuratively. And I think he thinks that the NFL is a larger opportunity for him to have some success there just thanks to the controversies in the past about kneeling during the national anthem and Colin Kaepernick and quote unquote disrespecting the military. 
unfortunately for him, I, I think that the issue is much less polarizing today than it was when he picked that fight four years ago or three years ago. I mean, America's support for Black Lives Matter has spiked over the last few weeks, and a majority of Americans believe in its message. Uh, I just, I mean, as it goes to, like, with the NBA, I don't think there's anything for him to latch on to. You know what I mean? Like, who is he going to, like... Picking a fight with LeBron or with Durant or with Curry, like I just don't. Even he understands that that's just such a losing gambit. And so, if he can find a divisive issue, then he will try to dig his way in and burrow his way in and 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 kind of separate people who would otherwise have a common bond and a common way of thinking about something. But, like, there's just nothing for him to to to, to grasp here with the NBA. Is, is, maybe that's it. I, but, again, like, I have no idea what this man is thinking. Yeah, it's tricky, man. I've been giving it some thought. First of all, I asked the question because I'm bracing for it, right? I mean, we're looking at a situation here where the NBA playoffs could be running until mid-October, right before the election. You know, we're in a situation where those players are going to have to get creative to draw interest, um, you know, within an environment that there's no fans and they're going to be trying to pull out every stop they can to make this a good television product. And you're also in a situation where we know these players feel deeply passionate about these issues, right? So they're not going to go to Orlando and just stop thinking that the protests are taking place. In fact, I think you've seen a lot of players remain silent about the Orlando concept here over the last two weeks because they don't want to distract or give an alternate uh, alternate story to the protests, right? They want to kind of stay on message and, and kind of keep the energy there. And I think that's very smart of them um, and very shrewd of them as leaders. So I part of me is just worried there's going to be a car crash moment here, right? Like at some point, there's just going to come to the head and then we're going to get another you know round of the U-bum back and forth. And that could get very divisive. Like you mentioned, it could get very personal. And I think ultimately, like the supporters of these players are louder and more invested by a lot than they were a few years ago when there was a back and forth. And I think that that carries real weight. I mean, if you look at the polls here recently, um, the last, uh, you know, especially two weeks, uh, you know, Trump's numbers have been, you know, taking a dive pretty quickly. Uh, It's possible that he needs to find a different way to, you know, reframe this issue rather than, you know, him versus athletes that might not be working out or that might not be as productive as it once was. And then also, I think that it's possible his supporters view this idea of like having the NFL be the way they want it as something that's very near and dear to their heart, whereas maybe they're not as invested in the NBA already. And so if you're just you know yelling about NBA players, maybe that doesn't animate them in the same way uh, because perhaps they just care more about football and because perhaps they love the flag or uh, the other arguments that he's made in the past. And that's just sort of a higher priority to them. I don't know, but uh, it will be interesting to see how long he can resist, I guess is my point. Yeah, and uh, yeah, shout out to Steph Curry and that video. I I watched it about a million times and it made the hairs on my neck stand at attention and uh, it was awesome to see and I just love love watching it. So I just wanted to throw that out there before we moved on. No, that's too much information, but thanks, Michael. Um, Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We got one last uh, question here. I just want to, it's not even a question. It's a statement from Chris. I just wanted to throw this in to remind everyone, you know, we are the open floor globe here and uh, protests are not just happening in the United States. They've been happening over the last couple of weeks all over Europe. 
Uh, but even before that, there's been some high-profile protests in other parts of the world. Chris writes, I have never written in before to any podcast or show, but I just wanted to thank you for the comment that people should be careful about reading, viewing details and footage of protests and violence for hours on end. I'm from Hong Kong, and that has essentially been our daily existence for most of the past 12 months, and it is tremendously frustrating and draining. I sincerely hope that people in Hong Kong, in America, and in fact across the world will hold on to their mental strengths and humanity so that progress, fairness, and participation will emerge from all of this. I thought that was just a beautiful message from Chris. Uh, and you're, get what I was, you're getting what I was trying to say, Chris. I don't want people to tune out here. That's not the message, right? Because I think sometimes we need to look at our worst moments as a country to really reckon with who we are. But I do worry about the, the oversaturation, the constant saturation of this violence because uh, it can have real effects. And I'm glad you helped me put that point into better perspective. And uh, I just want to add, pick up a book. Like, I, I'm pretty sure I've said this many times on this podcast. If you are, you know, really down in the dumps, trying to sort through and scroll through the deluge of social media, just like pick up a book. And there's plenty of, I mean, you can read about whatever you want, but if you want to read about what's going on and educate yourself about what's going on in the world right now, there's plenty of uh, resources out there for you to do so. Michael, were you a reading rainbow guy as a kid? <laughs> reading rainbow um wow i yeah sure i guess so do you remember, I, I, you remember I've that show right myself like that of course yeah well the song 100%. was like take a look it's in a book it's reading rainbow i feel like you were just like remixing that into podcast form 25 years later subtly maybe not even realizing that you were doing it um so great job thank you well, speaking of a less than great job, Michael, it's time to shift our focus to our all quarantine draft follow ups. We're going to race through a bunch of takes that people had. So if you want to push back on any of their pushback, Michael, if you want to spar with anybody, uh, feel free. Uh, like I mentioned, I uh, drafted the Vancouver vaccines, very superstar laden team. Um, I was clout chasing a little bit, as I mentioned, filling my bench out with guys like Zion and Luca. You drafted the Louisville, I'm going to try to say it, but who knows, greatest. Uh, and your team had lots of veterans like uh, J.J. Redick and P.J. Tucker, uh, more role player types, Joe Ingles. Uh, you're trying to put together sort of a real team that was veteran experienced and could kind of handle the pressure um, you know, of, uh, of the Orlando uh, experience. And as we mentioned, we were trying to get players who would be able to adapt and fit together well and be able to make it work given the crazy schedule change, given the fact that there's no fans down in Orlando and everything else. So here's what people had to say, Michael. Kyle says, generally when I listen to the Open Floor podcast, I'm walking through a local nature reserve <laughs> here in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia. And I actually think it's Melbourne, not Melbourne. I'm going to just... I thought it was Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, okay. Melbourne. Melbourne. Um, yeah, well, I'm not sure we're going to get invited down there anytime soon, Michael. He says, after a long day of studying is when he does his walks. It's usually very peaceful where you can spot local flora and fauna, including the occasional wallaby, which is a small kangaroo. However, the peace was disrupted this week after hearing the pod select PJ Tucker with the number five pick of your quarantine draft. I couldn't help but literally yell out, no way. This undoubtedly scared off any animals within my immediate vicinity, but after giving it some thought, I'm all in with the pod selection. Here is why. 
There's no way his team loses both games one and two against Vancouver. His team is built on hustle, mutual respect for ability, and trash talk. Their identity is clear, the roles are clear, and the desire to win is evident. Louisville will be locked in for games one and two, and no way Vancouver can organize their egos and playing style in time to combat that degree of two-way energy. After that, I'm sure the vaccines steal a game or two based on the ridiculous raw talent and the sheer will of LeBron and Giannis. But once the greatest see that they can beat the vaccines, the trash talking intensity will be higher than any team in history, and that will be enough for them to take the series in five or six. And then he asked, who's going to coach your teams, Michael? He thought Spolstra or Mike D'Antoni for your squad, and he was nominating uh, Steve Kerr perhaps for my team, but maybe also uh, Teron Liu based on his ability to kind of manage egos. So great suggestions on the coaches. Michael, I, I included this one first because the general tenor of the response to our draft was a deep appreciation for your vision. It kind of felt like the 2015 NBA Finals where most people had the Warriors winning, but they also felt like LeBron was the best player in the series. I think people respected my team and product slightly more than you did, um, even though Kyle's giving you the win here uh, somehow, some way. I don't know why. Um, but they, <laughs> I think people were more gravitating towards your drafting style. So I'm just curious, how does that make you feel? Is that a win in your book? And then who also, uh, who do you want to coach your team? Yeah, I mean, Kyle is obviously a brilliant person, uh, a genius, if you will. And I love everything that he said in the email. I'm glad that he and some of the other uh, listeners understood what I was going for with my team. And, you know, you uh, used the 2015 Warriors as an example there with them versus LeBron's Cavs. And I kind of think of it more as the 2011 Mavericks and just like this actual team where pieces fit and it just makes a lot of sense and it all comes together. There's a lot of veteran leadership, a lot of professionals. That team would be that's a great quarantine team. And they go up against, you know, the the big three with Wade, LeBron and Bosch and all this talent and all this it's uh, this spectacle of of an organization and uh, they win. So that's kind of how I viewed what would actually happen if our teams played. It's a minor miracle you didn't take J.J. Barea. Uh, maybe if we had gone for 10-man <laughs> rosters, you would have been able to sneak him in. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, I haven't picked my coach yet. Oh, J.J. Barea is <laughs> no, your I'm coach? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But that would be incredible, and we would still win. I like your comparison here to 2011. Just keep in mind that I've got Dame instead of Rio as my point guard, okay? It's going to be a little different <laughs> dynamic there for you to try to defend. But anyway, who's your coach? Yeah, with the coaching, I mean, there's really no specific personality that I think would fit this group perfectly. So, I mean, like Spolstra, D'Antoni, Brad Stevens, Nick Nurse, Doc Rivers, like I'll take any coach who is good uh, <laughs> and, and be happy. Um, just coaches who are like sensible and who understand their personnel and who try to get the best out of them and... Uh, who kind of uh, uh, mold their own schemes towards the players that are are on the floor. Uh, and I think those coaches do a really good job of that. I liked his picks for my team, but I'm actually going to go with Doc Rivers. All I need to do is keep my players motivated. And I feel like Doc Rivers could motivate me into doing almost anything with the pregame speech, um, especially when the voice starts to go hoarse. It just adds a whole nother degree of like intensity and buy-in. If I have Doc Rivers lecturing... LeBron and Giannis and AD and all these guys about like the importance of winning a title during the quarantine period. 
I feel like I'm wiping you off the court basically no matter what. All right, we got a question from Shlomo, and he says, Hope everything's going okay and that you guys are just as excited for the NBA return as I am. I think the Vancouver vaccines would have come out as champions of Disney World, crushing the Louisville greatest. In your last episode, you said you would never in a million years pick Kyrie Irving, even though this was in the quarantine draft. And Shlomo says, I am personally a huge Kyrie Irving fan. He is my favorite player, and I think he is a top three-point guard in the NBA. That being said, I'm very confused why you would never pick Kyrie. Please elaborate if you can find a chance. And Shlomo is such a Kyrie Irving fan that his little Google uh, email icon, Michael, is actually the Kyrie Mm -hmm. Irving Nike logo with his initials. So tread carefully here because we don't want to lose Shlomo as a listener. Shlomo, love the email. Uh, I... You know, uh, which one of us said that in, we would never in a million years pick Kyrie Irving? Was that me? It was me, but you're going to have to answer for it because I know you share my tendency. <laughs> you also did not pick Kyrie, um, no, in part because he was injured. That's, that was part of the reason why he wasn't drafted, Shlomo. But um, look, I'll, I'll just say this, uh, I, and I've, I've run through this many times in the past. I mean, from a leadership standpoint, um, he just doesn't measure up to his skill standpoint. The guy's an unbelievable ball handler, unbelievable shot creator, shot maker. Um, he has a very clear vision of how he wants to play basketball. And at, at times during his career, it's been incredible in the right fit. I think, unfortunately, at this stage of his career, he's got to be you know, a 1A or a 1B guy for your team. Um, and as we saw in Boston, like that just, it doesn't work with his personality. Um, it doesn't work with the consistency of effort and night to night play. And I think unfortunately, like one of the things Shlomo that I really bothers me is untapped potential or people who like kind of don't quite achieve what they're capable of. And I just think that Kyrie's in a situation where, I mean, the gifts are just undeniable. And I'm sure that's why he's one of your favorite players. I would just like to see the consistency factor, the leadership factor, the buy-in, the self-perception um, live up to the same standard as his talent. And I'm not sure we're going to get there because, you know, he's a human being and he can he can live how he wants to. Um, but uh, that, that's kind of where I come down. And also, I was just annoyed by the whole flat earth controversy and some of the other conspiracy theories he were throwing out there. I mean, ultimately, he has a lot of kids who look up to him. He's one of the most popular players in the league. And I just felt like that entire chapter was excruciating to live through. And now that we're in this whole like fake news conversation and all that, I just think it looks even worse, um, you know, a couple years later. Not to say that I would, you know, invalidate every opinion that Kyrie's had. He's said a lot of smart things over the years, too. He had a really poignant speech about grief. I think he's pointed to the role of government in the past and kind of questioned what's government really about. I think there's a a lot of, you know, positive messages that could be taken from what he's saying. Uh, But you know, it's just not always, he's not always on point uh, when he's lecturing us about, uh, you know, phil- Can, philosophy. Yeah. Ben, Ben, you're going, you're going on too long here. I mean, Kyrie is the face of locker room disruption in the NBA in 2020. That's like what it is. That's why he wasn't selected. It's so much about going into Orlando is going to be about chemistry, especially when you're constructing a team from scratch as we were for this draft. And so everyone loves watching Kyrie play. He's magical on the court. He does things no one else can. Uh, But if he were to be on my team, he would be only used in situations where we needed to get a bucket at the end of a quarter or a half or a a game. And so uh, he would obviously not be happy with that circumstance. And that is why, in addition to his physical ailments, that is why I, uh, I kept him off. I think we've got ourselves a new podcast motto. Ben, you're going on too long here. Thanks, Michael. We've we've nailed it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let me get some t-shirts made up. All right, Drew says, doesn't Kawhi look at his team and then see the vaccines with LeBron, Giannis, and Paul George, and then immediately decide to demand a trade? I mean, these guys are all on one team, so surely Kawhi can force his way off of his own into that scenario. Michael, he's taking digs at your franchise player. He's thinking you're going to want to come over here to greener pastures in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, are you concerned that Kawhi, who bailed out of San Antonio and then left Toronto on the first plane smoking, um, would want to come roll with the winners up in Vancouver? So Kawhi, this is the same person who literally could have been teammates with LeBron James and Anthony Davis and decided not to. This is the same Kawhi Leonard we're we're talking about here? Well, he also did trade draft picks until 2065 to get Paul George because he had to have his own little super team, right? I mean, this is... Right, but yes, but we will both agree that teaming up with LeBron and AD on the Lakers is a different situation than being the best player beside Paul George and... Oh, a bunch of role players. I think the only thing we can agree is that Vancouver vaccines are better than the Lakers. <laughs> I think I think we can agree that. But uh, does he have a point here? Are you worried about uh, Kawhi no. having a, a wandering eye? What about that? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, first of all, my team has great talent. I mean, we've got James Harden, who averages, you know, uh, 35 points a night. He's this terrific player, MVP candidate every season, plays for a championship contender, can be the best player on a champion. Uh, Oh, yeah, and superstars love to play with him. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's very tight with with Russell Westbrook and, uh, and, and Kevin Durant from their time in Oklahoma City. Everybody loves him. No one says a bad word about James Harden. So I think Kawhi would, 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 make it work with him is what I would think and hope. And then also Jimmy Butler's a top 12 player in the world too. Let's not short him. Uh, Yeah, you've got some talent. There's no doubt. I mean, not as much, but you've got some. Uh, Thaddeus writes in, (laughs) I really think this was a great analysis of where the game is going. And he meant, Michael, that we didn't really take too many point guards and that we took a lot of wings and that we didn't really have a lot of traditional bigs either. And he's essentially saying, hey, look, I mean, this this draft kind of shows you what truly matters in the modern NBA. So thanks for that, Thaddeus. And he continues, Michael, I see what you tried to do. Maybe if there were some constraints on how many all-stars you could draft, your strategy would have made more sense. But look, there's a reason why star power wins out. He then goes through to like break down my front court rotation, Michael, where he's like handing out minutes to Zion, Pascal, AD, and Giannis. And I just had to laugh here with with Thaddeus. I mean, he wants to be the coach of this team. He wants to be Doc Rivers, and I can appreciate that. And then he, he kind of wraps up by saying, Michael... I need to troll you for your final breakdown of your team being built on chemistry. Two of your comments were something to the effect of just run everything through Kawhi and then CP3 will run the show. I laughed so hard thinking about a kumbaya team where James Harden was involved and needed to be the third option. It just would never work. He already played with CP3 and he didn't let CP3 run the show either. Michael, Thaddeus is raising some very good points here. I didn't hammer you on the chemistry part as much as I should have. Do you need to rethink your team construction now that uh, Thaddeus has shown you the light? I mean, I acknowledge the CP Harden dynamic as being a potentially thorny issue. Uh, I think that, first of all, I think Harden, you know, he scores a lot because, like, that's his team's best path to, best path to success. He's also like an all-time distributor and playmaker and has actually said before that, you know, he would he's 
I, I mean, there was that situation where he was talking to Curry, Steph Curry at the All-Star game or All-Star weekend during the, the, the practice, and he mentioned how he really was an admirer of that style of play, and he wishes he could do it sometimes, and it's exhausting to be in the role that he's in. So, I mean, I don't think that there would be that much of an issue, particularly over an abbreviated, uh, you know, three months or whatever it would be inside the bubble. Uh, so no concerns there. Michael, I will say you don't think there's going to be an incident in the cafeteria, sort of like J.R. Smith soup throwing incident, where Chris Paul is just like throwing a tray at James Harden after a game three loss, or Harden's like looking over at him and maybe like chucking, you know, a, a giant salad bowl back at Chris Paul. You really think they can make it in in close proximity for two and a half months together without there Amen. being some Amen. overload? Hey, man, families fight, okay? That's what makes us stronger. <laughs> All right. I'm with Thaddeus. I'm unconvinced, Michael. I, I will say, just real quick, in uh, in drafting my team, the one mistake I think I made was just, like, completely overlooking the need for height and the need for rim protection. Like, I think I, I have some good defensive players on board, and that's kind of where my mind was at with two-way wings and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of pressure on P.J. Tucker, and I hope that he's his body's uh, up for that pounding. Do they have any dating sites for people who are, like, six foot and shorter? Um, is that, like, a little niche dating? You know how they always have niche dating sites? Because I feel like you sort of drafted your team as, like, a niche dating site where it was like, look, if you're six six. You're out. You don't qualify. You, you, you have to like submit physicals to like even be able to sign up for the dating site. Um, just a million dollar idea. If it doesn't exist, someone out there who's listening could probably program that thing up and, and make quite a bit of money. No, that's a great, again, one of the best ideas you've had in public. I really applaud that one. Yeah, I shouldn't be giving these away for free, Michael. Um, all right, we got a couple other comments here to close this thing out. Um, a guy named Michael, not you, emailed in to say, I was curious about the all-quarantine draft. Luca was almost left off both of your teams, and Ben, who drafted Luca, said something like, this isn't the most responsible decision. I haven't seen tons of Mavericks games, but when I've seen him play on video or when I hear people talk about him, the impression I get is that Luca is a likely top five MVP candidate with incredible poise and leadership who might have some weaknesses on defense, but overall he's a game-wrecking player. Is there something about his game that closer inspection reveals is wanting? I'd be surprised if it was the poise because I hear that he is a guy who really has risen at the highest levels of basketball across the world at a young age and never shrunk from the challenge. I'm just curious why he came in so late. Great question, Michael. Um, I would say that mainly it's the fact that Luca is a ball-dominant playmaker. And so on my team, I already had guys who I felt like were better in that role than Luca, So it was going to wind up being a redundant situation if I tried to move mm-hmm. him into my starting lineup. And I think probably the same thing is true for you, Michael, right? If you're comparing uh, Harden versus Luka or I'm comparing LeBron versus Luka, that's not like a slight on Luka to be worse than those two guys, but those are the exact roles that he plays. And we've already got guys on our rosters who are better at precisely those skills, right? Right. And I guess or my my guess is that Michael wrote this email before news broke that, uh, you know, Lucas trainer said that Luca was not in great shape. So that's that was kind of what I was anticipating uh, in terms of my strategy for picking older guys and more professional players and veterans and 
just guys who, you know, uh, who stay ready and understand how important it is to take care of their bodies in time off. And I, I mean, I'm not like trying to pick on Luca, but it's like, okay, you're Michael. just more likely not to understand this if you're 21, 20 years old, however old he is. What will Luca weigh at his first game in Orlando? Oh my God. I know. Yeah. I ask the impossible um, questions, okay? It's my job. I know it's just, it's awful for somebody like you who studies hour by hour every single question to have a methodical answer as, as well researched as possible, but you're being put on the spot right now. Luka Doncic, what's he weighing? Um, I'm, I'm never good at guessing how much people weigh. It's not one of my skills. I, I'm going to go, like, I don't even know if this is just outrageous or not, but I'm going to go with, 240 250 is that like way too high i think that's like the ballpark of where he was as a rookie so if there was like some serious um indulging uh, from an eating standpoint over the last couple of months i guess it's possible i have faith in luca i'm calling bs on the trainer interview i think he's going to come back and look just fine and it's going to be one of those stories that we forget <laughs> i'm in complete denial the vancouver vaccines need their sixth man in good shape Hopefully he's working out as we speak. Um, yeah, again, it, it's not a shot at uh, at his game, Michael. It's more just how are you going to fit him when you're when you're assembling an all star team? And there's going to be a moment in the future, probably maybe two years from now, maybe three, where we say, you know what, Luca is now better at being that primary playmaker than LeBron. Like, who would you rather start a team with? That conversation is premature right now because of the experience factor for LeBron <clears throat> and the feel. And, uh, you know, everything else, you know, physicality wise that LeBron brings to the table. But if we get to 2022 or 2023, Luca's going to be in that spot uh, when we have these conversations. Um, all right. We had a guy named Kevin, a longtime uh, emailer and listener who decided to draft his own team. He called them the Moscow Cosmonauts. Uh, I don't know if he's a big SpaceX guy or not, but uh, his team was all guys who we didn't choose, Michael. He wanted Ben Simmons. Bradley Beal, Jason Tatum, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and Kristaps Porzingis. Um, on his bench, he added Kyle Lowry, Bam Adebayo, and Brandon Ingram. Michael, I think he might have had a better team than you, man. No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I, I like some of these players. I like, I think I like all of these players a lot. Um, look, like. My strategy, I've already laid it out for you. I, I I do like Kyle Lowry here. I do like Bam Adebayo, and I thought about taking him even though he's only in his third year and super young just because he's just wise beyond his his years, in my opinion. Um, well, and also you but, were leading yeah. the Bam Adebayo propaganda campaign for months very successfully this season. I was, And yes. he would have been a really nice matchup for like four of my different players. So once again, you know, I question- I the, dropped the ball there. I question no, yeah, the greatest yeah. draft, drafting strategy for sure. But- um, I should I should have taken Bam. But I, the, um, What's the weakness of his team when you're looking at these guys? Like, I mean, is Simmons kind of the weak link uh, in terms of not being that like <laughs> big? I mean, you know what I mean though? It's like, it's hard to imagine him- winning any no, positional he, he, battle against the, the the lead playmakers that you you have or I have it's just slightly less talent at those positions and then also it's it it gets to the heart of what you were talking about in terms of skill set redundancy so Jason Tatum, Bradley Beal, um Brandon Ingram those are very very similar skill sets and very similar it's not, I'm not saying that they can't play together 
I am saying that, you know, they all want the ball and they all want to score. And I don't know how comfortable they would be at the stages in their careers, particularly Tatum and Ingram, at seeding that those responsibilities and, and that, that spotlight. And then, like, yeah, I, I don't know. Ben Simmons is just really difficult to throw into any mix of players and understand what his role is because he's not having the ball a ton with these guys. Uh, out there uh so uh him and maybe even sga to a lesser degree because i think he's a pretty good spot up shooter or can be uh just the fit is just a little awkward for me the one story i want in orlando more than any other is simmons to be like a 45 percent three-point shooter in the empty gym that would be unreal can you imagine like just no fans and all of a sudden this guy's a knock i can't knock down shooter (laughs) off the dribble corner threes it would be so incredible and like psychologists from around the world would be called to give their expert opinion on what was happening um we've got two more quick ones here matthew says michael pina should be forced to hand in his celtics fan card after the utter disrespect he showed them in his quarantine draft he took middleton over tatum didn't even take jalen brown after his actions in the last week or so leading protests he didn't take Mr. Winning Plays himself, Marcus Smart. Michael, I believe that's a reference to another podcast that you're on, obviously forgetting your own identity when the pressure got hot. And then <laughs> he was talking about how there was a lack of point guards and straight up ignored Kemba Walker. Michael should be ashamed of him, ashamed of himself. Michael, is this one of your direct family members or close buddies who emailed this in because this got personal? And I imagine <laughs> that this email could have maybe kept you up at night. I think uh, not taking Marcus Smart was just that that literally kept me up at night, the night of the draft. Uh, That was an oversight on my part. I wish I could go back and and rectify it. Smart's going to be incredible in Orlando if the games are actually played. Uh, He's just, uh, he he barely made the, or missed the cut, I should say. Um, I mean, in terms of taking Middleton over Tatum, I don't think that Chris Middleton is better than Jason Tatum, but again, that's really not what it's. This is this exercise was about. It was about trying to find players who fit in a quarantine setting and with no fans and just incredibly uh, unusual circumstances and thriving in them. And I just think that Middleton, because of his temperament and because of his particular game, and because of what would be expected of him, would be a better fit with my team than Tatum. Michael, are you uh, I, sure it, that's what this exercise was about, or was it about you embarrassing your family lineage? I mean, come on. <laughs> like, just letting down Celtics Nation across across the globe, really. Um, I don't know. I think he raises some good points here. You couldn't... No, I mean, yeah. I, I, you took, I like, nine rockets on an eight-man team, and then you had no Celtics. It's pretty rough. Yeah, well, you know, um, some cuts had to be made. That's just life. And... Uh, Kemba, I mean, yeah, I can't go through all these names and, and rationalize my reasoning. But Kemba's uh, getting destroyed I, by the vaccines. You don't have to worry about Kemba. That's fine. <laughs> um, I, I do think if you had a ninth pick, it would have been Marcus Smart. Uh, if it wasn't Bam. Yes. It, your next two guys would have been Bam and Marcus Smart. And then your, your roster is covering a lot of these little gripes that people had, and you're looking great. Um, yeah. Morgan concludes with Ben obviously wins, but Ben forgot one thing. There is no player that owns another NBA player more than Joe Ingles owns Paul George. 
Paul George has never <laughs> looked worse than when his brain broke from the Australian trash talk from Jingles in the Utah Jazz Oklahoma City playoff series a few years ago. The vaccines are still wrecking the greatest, but I'm just going to have to tell you, you can't bring Paul George to these playoffs. He is not going to help. Michael, do you think, I mean, you mentioned uh, Joe Ingles' amazing trash talk abilities. I definitely dismissed it, right? Um, but I did not consider at all this incredible X factor where you're going to be able to turn Paul George into the worst player on the court thanks solely to Joe Ingles' mm-hmm. trash talk. Does that flip the whole series? Are you feeling like that's the X factor we should look at when we match up? Potentially. I mean, I did also overlook this, and it wasn't a factor in how I was picking my team, but I think Morgan secretly thinks that I would win, and this was his way of showing it, is is kind of what I gleaned from this. I mean, he literally started the email, Ben obviously wins. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure Morgan's on my team, but uh, good try. Good effort, Michael. We're going to have to do (laughs) another draft at some point. Uh, There's no question, because everybody was really engaged, and I loved all the thoughtful breakdowns. The ones that we read, there was a bunch more that we didn't get to guys thank you so much for emailing those in i gotta say it kind of just brightens my day to hear someone go for 500 words about how soulless my drafting strategy was or someone who's just going at michael for forgetting the celtics i mean it just makes me chuckle and i I appreciate you guys for helping uh, carry us through this quarantine period all right michael we will be back next week as i mentioned with a whole bunch of questions about the orlando bubble some suggestions from our listeners about how the entire experience could be more fun and more interactive for viewers on television some of them i really enjoyed Um, so we're going to be talking about that uh, next tuesday until then guys check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word now michael's on twitter at michael via uh, victor pina he's on instagram same handle michael via and victor pina i'm on twitter at ben golver on instagram at ben.golver don't forget guys email us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.